Welcome back to Wool Shift Dust, a Silo TV podcast. We're your hosts, Alicia Brenner and Luke Middick. And we'll be your guides as we go to the down deep of Silo, the dystopic sci-fi thriller from Apple TV+. Please consider this your official spoiler warning. We will be discussing episode five of Silo and everything leading up to it. And we will be discussing the equivalent parts of the books, or at least I will as a person in this duo who's read the books. Luke, our resident political historian, will meanwhile be representing new fans to the series, picking apart the clues and diving into the theory crafting. So we will not be spoiling any of the twists and turns to come in the story. If it hasn't happened on screen yet, my lips are zipped. Now, I just want to issue a mild content warning for this episode. We will be discussing uh, suicide and self-harm, specifically a description of hanging. And I will give you a warning first. So, Luke, overall thoughts on this week's episode? Um. I think it's going to come with a bit of a content warning of my own, actually, because this podcast comes from a place of love. You know, we've both been enjoying the TV series up until this point, and I always try and find the positives in anything we're reviewing. But I have to say, there are parts of this episode I really did not like at all, particularly Deputy Manza's death, which we'll get into. Definitely. Um, Yeah, I really didn't like the way that was done. The criticism some people have had of Silo up to this point is that it's dragged a little bit. I didn't think that was true up until this episode. I do think this episode dragged a little bit. Okay. Um. Yeah, well, I enjoyed it quite a bit for the most part. Uh, once I got past Marnes being taken out like that. Yeah, we'll get into it in a minute. But in the book, Marnes is found hanging. And it's never completely clear whether it's suicide or foul play. So yeah, this episode had some book fans upset because it contains significant deviations from the book, which we'll talk about more during the breakdown. But I don't know, to me, everything I saw on screen at least reminded me of a specific passage in the book. And I do think they're throwing a few misdirects out there. Uh, But the answers to the mysteries and who's pulling whose strings, uh, I think they're basically going to turn out to be the same as the books. And also... Yeah, we'll get to, you know, the people who, uh, the new fans who have your criticisms, but for the book fans, I just want to share something that book author Hugh Howey said during a Reddit AMA, which I hope will put some book fans more at ease. He said, I've been involved from the very beginning, sitting in the room with Graham and the other writers as we plotted out the beats for the pilot and each of the 10 episodes. Usually I was the one suggesting big changes and deviations and Graham was like, let's stick to the book. It was a great dynamic because I've always been open to adapting for the new medium. Wool is so internal and so much of the mystery. Lots of characters' thoughts, reading messages, digging into things in a non-physical way. We had to change that to make gripping TV. For me, a straight-up recreation almost never works well. Compare the Watchmen film to the Watchmen TV show. The latter is so much better. Luke, what do you make of that? Um, For a start, I've got to say I'm... I'm taken aback with the idea that the Watchmen TV series is significantly better than the comics. That is it. No, not the comic. He didn't say than the comic. Then he said it was a it was better than the movie as an adaptation. Um, that's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can yeah, disagree again, with that. But I'm that's not what he's sure. Saying. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, obviously, having not read the books, I can't really comment on issues of adaptation. I do think, you know, the story the TV show is telling is coherent and it works in its own terms, but this episode didn't quite do it for me. All right. All right. Well, we're going to get into the details of that. We'll see if we can find any new joy in there. But first, I actually want to issue a correction on myself. The correction actually came from the head graphic designer of the show, Pippa Broadhurst, someone we've mentioned a few times. 
And um, she contacted me on Twitter uh, to let me know that we had previously compared the silo logo that she designed to the Expo 67 logo and um, noting yeah, some design similarities. And she said, I think you can compare any circular logo, to be honest, especially if they include stick people. I certainly have never seen that logo. Being a Brit, I'm not so au fait with North American logos, but we have to send everything we design through clearance. So if anything resembled something extant, we would have to redesign. The packed logo has a helix at its core too, which, yeah, now that she mentions that, you go back and look at the packed logo and indeed you can see a, a helix design uh, going through the middle, uh, like vertically. Another correction of sorts, uh, or at least it's speculation on my part that uh, I don't think panned out. The episode's title this week, The Janitor's Boy, I thought it might refer to the eagerly awaited Billings character, son of a plumber in the books. But it turns out that it was Sims all along. Yeah, I thought that that was actually my favourite part of the episode was that little monologue that Sims delivers before he does the deed that we'll talk about uh, when we get there. That I thought you, that gave you a lot of insight into who Sims is and what motivates him. And yeah, I thought that was by far and away the best part of the episode. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to get into this because some of this Sims stuff particularly has book readers' heads spinning. So exciting stuff, whether you've read the books or not. Uh, by the way, I, I also had another thought about the fact that they changed Peter uh, Billings to Paul Billings. Uh, it was Peter Billings in the book and Paul Billings in the TV show. And, you know, we were trying to come up with why that would be. And I was thinking, you know, I think we're overthinking it. And Occam's Razor, the simplest explanation is that there's already another character named Peter, namely Dr. Nichols is Peter Nichols. So I think that's probably okay. why they, yeah. So the episode this week was, again, like last week, directed by David Semmel. Uh, but this time it was written by showrunner Graham Yost himself. You ready to get into yep, it, Luke? Go ahead. All right, let's do that right after a quick commercial break. Your regularly scheduled breakdown will begin in three, two, one. So we pick up right where we left off. Juliet, Rebecca Ferguson, is staring forlornly at lost lover George's file, played by Fernand Kingsley. Uh, notably, it has a photo in it, not a drawing attached. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because uh, Walker mentions it later on, the, the, the cameras they use to make identities with. So they do have photographic technology, just its use is not widespread. But yeah, that was something that had me Leo pointing GIF at the start of the episode. It's, ah, they do have cameras, yeah. they just don't widely use them. Yeah, exactly. Another thing to be controlled at the top. So Juliet flips a page in the file and we see Gloria Hildebrand was interviewed for 45 minutes, something pertaining to him. That's the woman played by Sophie Thompson, who gave Allison the idea her birth control hadn't been removed in the first episode. We also see that someone named D.S. Carnes was present at that interview. And a little light sleuthing tells us that Deputy Molly Carnes, played by Angela Yo, she was mentioned by Sandy in the second episode as the person who wired Mayor Johns to warn that people were collecting pipes and other potential weapons. And we saw her briefly, I believe, uh, offering sleeping arrangements to Johns and Marnes on their journey back up from the down deep. She's credited for the next episode, episode six, so we'll probably see more of her then. But uh, Luke, about the interview with Gloria, why do you think they I were interviewing her I don't about know, George? I think maybe, maybe she had like a sideline in dealing relics and other forbidden items. You certainly got the sense from the interaction she had with Allison that she was sort of on the outer edges of, for want of a better phrase, the criminal fraternity within the silo. 
So it wouldn't surprise me if she was moving a little bit of contraband. That brings me to a question that I, I think it was mentioned somewhere in the Discord, and it's a question I had as well. Are all relics forbidden because they are relics? Or no. is there such a thing as a class of allowable relics? Well, like, the watch is not in and of itself forbidden. Although we see when they're looking through this file, they are asking him where he got the watch. And he's like, it's not forbidden. And they're like, yeah, well, but who gave it to you? And he's like, nobody. I have nobody. Definitely not dating Juliet. (laughs) So there is such a thing as a legal relic then? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that the Pez dispenser is illegal too. I just don't know what it could do. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess we'll see because that definitely comes up later. But Alicia, it could dispense Pez. I mean, who knows what it could lead to? The sugar rush alone. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We did see cotton candy in the market though. But yeah, do you think this means we might see more of Gloria? Um, Hopefully, because she is kind of where all this started. So mm-hmm. Juliet is going to run. You would think Juliet would run across her sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, um, the name Gloria is mentioned a couple times, probably referring to different people because one was Marnes's neighbor um, who was implied to be like a daycare or school teacher of sorts. And she was there when Juliet finds Marnes hanging in his apartment. And the other, uh, the other time is a name that's mentioned, but it's in reference to a porter who's passed away. So it seems to be somebody else. So I think this Gloria, it seems she didn't show up when Marnes died. Um, I think she's a new character, really, just borrowing a name. Okay. Whisperer of conspiracy theories, guest star in this George Wilkins file. Well, all we know about her so far is that she and her husband couldn't conceive. So she began to suspect that less docile citizens in the silo weren't being allowed to conceive. So I don't know how that could link to George, but I'm very curious. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's she has a side relics business too. Yeah, I, I just got the sense that like when she was talking to Alison, uh, because Holston was clearly aware of her, he was clearly aware of the fact that he she'd been talking to other women and trying to convince them that there were certain ways of getting pregnant. So, like, she's clearly run across the path of the sheriff's office before. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if she'd run across judicial's path at some point because, like, she didn't seem to be, like, attached to a particular department like everybody else, or at least it wasn't mentioned. So I sort of got the impression that she was making a living doing shady stuff, to be honest. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, and meanwhile, George's interview was attended by deputies Johnson and Patel, which are two names that don't really mean anything at this point. So I'm curious if either of those deputies pop up in the future. They were asking him, as we said, questions about his watch. And he insisted it was legal. And the uh, interviewers really wanted to know where he got it. Where do you think they are worried that he got it? Like I said, I think he probably links back to, to Gloria and the idea that maybe she was dealing in relics, he's dealing in relics. The watch might not be illegal, but it's not the kind of thing that most people have in the silo. So I'm guessing it was a red flag for them that this guy might be involved with relics, might be involved again with moving stolen goods. Digging up an old digger. Yeah, digging up an old digger, finding a Pez dispenser. (laughs) Oh, not the Pez dispenser, anything but. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, even Juliet wonders why Holston would want to keep this file hidden. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious what this secret turns out to be, because we thought that the hard drive is going to be with it, but it's not. Yeah, like Holston clearly laid out a series of breadcrumbs for Juliet to find over presumably quite a period of time. Because are we do we know how much time? It was quite a long time between Alison going out to clean 
and Holston going out to clean, wasn't it? Yeah, three. It was three years, but yeah. But I think he he set up this stuff for Juliet like the day before he went out to clean himself. I'm not sure that he did. Well, we know it had to be have been within the last three months because that's when you know he yeah. met Juliet. Yeah, but I'm guessing it took most of that three months rather than sort of the day before because I think Holston has been Holston has had to be quite careful in laying out these breadcrumbs so as not to draw attention from judicial. If he did that over a brief period of time, it might look more suspicious. So my working theory is that hopefully in like the latter episodes of the series, I'd like to see in flashback how Holston did this without drawing anybody's attention. Yeah, we still have to find out what double the flowers in front of the mirror means. Yeah. But yeah, so Juliet's looking at this file and then a porter shows up, breathless, with a note from Sims. Marn's head has been bashed in. Now, like I said in the books, Marn's hung himself, or did he? They were totally teasing the book readers last episode with that scene where they showed him hanging the punching bag and all the book readers like, oh no, here's the moment. But obviously it wasn't that. And instead his his skull is crushed off screen, which... um. Yeah, I don't know. That was a that was a that was a choice. So it's no longer is it a suicide? Is it murder? Which is never resolved in the book. It's just flat out murder. Yeah, I I really I really 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 don't care for this scene at all. I think killing Mans is a choice, um, and clearly if he dies in the book, he's got to die relatively soon in the TV series. But doing it off screen. I think that does the character a disservice. Like, we've spent quite a lot of time with Mons. We know him well. He's been an important character to the story so far. And, you know, Alison and Holston both got their moments. I mean, Holston, that great line, you know, sorry for all the fuss, stuff like that. I thought the mm, idea yeah. that you, you, you kill Mons off, like he's a character that pops up in one episode to do some exposition dumping or that he's just an ascended extra. I don't know, I, that just, it didn't sit right with me. And it felt very anticlimactic to just have his head bashed in off screen. Yeah. I wanted to know more about Marnes. I wanted to know more about his his sort of burgeoning relationship with Juliet. It just seemed premature to kill that character off at this point. I think there was clearly stuff that you could have done with that character. Yeah, when they didn't kill him last week, I thought that he might stick around a little longer, but apparently not. I am going to talk about what happens in Wool, including a reading of the moment where Juliet finds him. Now, for anyone who thinks that might be too upsetting, please use the skip forward button twice now. Okay, for those who want to know, basically how it goes down in Wool is that Marnes just doesn't show up for work one morning, which Juliet finds strange. So she goes to his house looking for him and finds... There wasn't much space to hang oneself in the small apartment, but Marnes had figured out how. His belt was cinched around his neck, the buckle lodged into the top of the bathroom door. His feet were on the bed, but at a right angle, not enough to support his weight. His butt drooped below his feet, his face no longer red, the belt biting deep into his neck. Juliet hugged Marnes' waist and lifted him up. He was heavier than he looked. She kicked his feet off the bed and they flopped to the floor, making it easier to hold him. There was a curse at the door. Gloria's husband ran in and helped Juliet support the deputy's weight. The both of them fumbled for the belt, trying to dislodge it from the door. Juliet finally tugged the door open, freeing him. On the bed, she huffed. They lifted him to the bed and laid him out flat. Gloria's husband rested his hands on his knees and took deep breaths. Gloria, run for Dr. O'Neill. 
So, Luke, do you prefer that version? Yeah, I do. I mean, frankly, I don't like the idea of Mons dying. <laughs> Hugh Howie seems to have a nasty habit of killing off his main characters uh, fairly regularly. Nobody's safe. But yeah, I, I just felt that doing it off screen, I don't know, Mons had, had earned more than that for me. Okay, it felt, that's fair. Yeah, it just felt wrong. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Uh, that that was my biggest issue. Pr- pretty much my only real issue with the with the episode was uh, the way his death was handled, which I'm guessing probably I don't know they didn't want to have to pay him for another episode. Yeah, I, I can't imagine Will Patton is that expensive. <laughs> That's not a slight well, on Will Patton, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine he's up there with Rebecca Ferguson somehow. I mean, he's he's a much older name than hers. Um, I guess. But so it, we see in the show, we see uh, Sims is there. Um, do you think he's genuinely upset about Marnes' death? I mean, they did seem to be friends. Mm, no, I mean, I, I go back to the point I made a couple of podcasts ago. I don't think Sims has friends. I think there's very little in this world that genuinely upsets Sims. Okay. I would wager probably protecting his family, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that's about it. Okay, so we also finally in the scene meet Paul Billings, played by Chinaza Uche. Uh, this is a character that we know the judge, Sims, and Bernard from IT all desperately wanted to be mayor. What's your first impression, Luke? Actually, I, I liked Billings a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, I thought he's a much more complicated character than I thought he was going to be. I thought he was going to be the classic you know, stooge from judicial, but I think Billings actually, he seems in his own way to want to do the right thing. And I'm not sure quite what his relationship with Juliet is going to be going forward. Um, I'm not sure what his relationship with Sims is going to be going forward. And I think he actually does want to make a good fist of being a sheriff's deputy. I don't think he is just there as judicial's eyes and ears. I did like the concept of the listeners, the the informants mm. that judicial use. Um, and I thought the fact that Billings is uncomfortable with that idea was interesting and said something about him. Right. I thought it was really interesting that, like, Juliet sends him home. Juliet is wandering around the silo trying to find um, Patrick Kennedy. And she sends Billings home for lunch. And he goes straight to judicial. When he did that, I thought, aren't oh, you... Absolute sneak. And then later on in the episode, he confesses to Juliet that that's what he did. And right. it's like, I'm not sure what game you're playing, but I really want to find out. Because, yeah. yeah, I'm really not sure. I'm not sure what's motivating Billings, but he's not just judicials. He's not just a henchman. He's not just judicial stooge. He has some sense of... He has some sense of loyalty to his own idea of a moral code, which I think is going to be interesting. I still don't get why Judicial was so insistent on it being him, given what he did in this episode. He's not like, he's not Doug Trumbull. He's not the other guy from Judicial. We see who will just follow orders pretty blindly. Well, I mean, we'll talk about Doug Trumbull later, but he didn't follow orders blindly. Well, that, that, okay, yes, that's true. Okay, he won't, let me rephrase that. He won't just go out of his way to try and please judicial. There's something else going on here. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got to meet Billings. He's a much more interesting character than I was expecting. Yeah, from the book perspective, I mean, he's a similar character, but with one major difference is that this is a much more assertive version of him. Um, in the book, he seems much more afraid to question things. 
And so it's going to be interesting to see how this assertiveness might change the way he handles some events to come. Okay, interesting. Is that in the the way the show is scripted? Or is that just in the way the actor, is that just in the actor's performance when you say he's more resourceful? I mean, both, but I would guess that they cast him uh, and directed him to act this way. It's a very marked difference. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll get into it okay. more when other events play out and I'll t- tell you how he's described as having been responding to that. And then, uh, yeah, you'll see, but we're not that far yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but anyway, so Sims, a.k.a. Common, he's already sworn Billings in as the new chief deputy, even when, as Juliet puts it, the old one's not even cold. But of course, in sweeps Bernard, Tim Robbins, Mayor Pro Tem after the last mysterious death, and Bernard doesn't want people to know that Marnes has been killed, but I really don't see how that's possible. <laughs> um, Juliet asks for a minute alone with Marnes' body, and she pulls out of his pocket a list of names of the people that he was using aggressive interrogation tactics with last week, including Doris Kennedy, the deceased wife of the guy who gave Marnes the bloody nose. Uh, her name is circled. Dear Darling Doris. Dear Darling Doris, with the circled name. Now, back in the mayor's office after this, Bernard, he's drinking for four because nobody else is in the mood to dip into late Ruth John's liquor right now. But um, apparently Bernard's always in that mood. Yeah. It's always five o'clock in the mayor's office. Yeah. So Bernard, I was confused, actually. Is the, Are we meant to imply that Bernard is slightly buzzed or slightly drunk during this meeting or just tired? I didn't really sort of know what to make of I didn't get the impression that he was at any point drunk but it does it is interesting that he's constantly going for the alcohol like that seems to be a yeah. character trait even though I don't know yeah I'm I'm curious where that's going There's certainly a meeting towards the end of the episode where he definitely is slightly drunk Yeah you think Yeah absolutely Okay I yeah I didn't pick that up Okay yeah right now everyone's un- worried about the unrest yet another prominent death could cause Juliet, she proposes that they bury Johns and Marnes together to conserve resources, she says, even though she knows full well that they were in love. But she seems to think that's private. Bernard, on the other hand, he wants to make it the story, to play up the romance, to keep the peace, give the people something to root for. What's your read on Bernard overall this episode, drinking aside? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting episode for Bernard. And actually, I have to walk back something I said in the last podcast. Well, I kind of thought that Bernard was going to... I thought it was fairly obvious that Bernard was going to run for mayor and that he really wanted to. I think I'm going to have to revise that opinion based on this episode. Clearly, Bernard is quite a sort of canny, bureaucratic politician, but as we're about to find out in the next scene, he's got no feel for, you know, performance, Mm -hmm. public-facing aspects of being mayor. And he genuinely does seem like put upon and stressed by the position. So I think actually when he says to Juliet, and I'm paraphrasing, hopefully I'm only going to be mayor for a few months later on in the episode, I actually believed him when he said that. Okay. Um, Yeah, because he seems genuinely uncomfortable being mayor. Okay. Um, So actually, after all the grief I've given Bernard over this podcast, I actually felt a little bit sorry for him this episode. Yeah, it is, you know, his attitude here is a slight change for the books. Like, so Sim suggests here in the TV show that they keep the peace with a forgiveness holiday, saying it's good for morale. And yeah, Bernard quips, it's good for judicial, you mean, which is funny because in the books, he's the one who proposes the forgiveness moratorium. Forgive and forget, he, Bernard said, wiping his palms together. That's going to be my election motto. The people need this. 
This is about new beginnings, forgetting the past during these tumultuous times, looking to the future. He slapped her on the back hard, nodded to Peter and, uh, who's Paul, headed to the door. Election motto, she asked before he could get away, and it occurred to her that one of the folders he was suggesting could be forgiven was one wherein he was the prime suspect. Thoughts? Interesting. So in the book, Bernard is definitely running for mayor then and wants to. I certainly didn't get that from this episode. Yeah, no, he explicitly states in this episode that he doesn't want to. Yeah. But then the question is, do we believe that? When he said he didn't want to, in that moment, I absolutely believed him because... No, I I mean, he he sold me on him too. And Yeah. 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 So that that's really interesting, and that sounds like quite a radical departure from the book. I mean, yeah, there's there are a few questions uh, being raised about will Bernard be a different character as this story unfolds. But at the end of the episode, he does propose himself this forgiveness holiday and warns Juliet that she and her deputies better be extra diligent because people tend to go wild. But in the meantime, he has another fun idea. And I actually find this a delightful and welcome world-building addition, the race to the top which is exactly what it says on the tin. Bernard says John's loved a good foot race, and Sims contradicts him and says she thought they got out of hand, really didn't like them. And Bernard goes, hmm, and dismisses it. Yeah, I love the idea of there being like a sporting event in the silo. And of course, when you think about the environment, what else is it going to be but a foot race? And there's a scene a little bit later on where Juliet and... I think Billings are walking through a landing on the silo. And I think if you look in the background, there are people with chalk. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring that up. Marking marking out either the the start line or the finish line. But there's also just children drawing, like just the way children draw on sidewalks. Yeah. Which I thought was a great world building, you know, because of course they would do that. And that's another reason why the stairs should be cement, not metal. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into the other action that goes on during this race to the top later. But... I just wanted to point out that the sequence is, it's a real highlight of cinematography. They only built three levels worth of these stairs, but they make it and the action look absolutely epic with the way they shoot it. Luke, did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, and I mean, because you WhatsApp me that we were going to talk about the cinematography. So I was sort of, the second time I watched the episode through, I was particularly looking out for a cinematographic point of view. And yeah, the way that race is done is really impressive. I think actually, and this is not just for this episode, but this is for the series as a whole. One of the things I find really impressive about the the way this the series is shot, and this isn't just the cinematography, it's the lighting, it's the way the the sets are dressed, is that it, it implies that the silo and particularly sort of the public spaces, the stairs and the landings are supposed to be quite dark, dim places whilst allowing enough light for the audience to see what is going on. Right. Um, So you don't get like the Game of Thrones season eight thing where I know it's supposed to be dark. You've communicated that it's dark, but I can't see anything. I can't understand what's going on here. Yeah. You've actually, I think what they've done with Silo is communicated the idea of darkness without it actually being too dark for the audience to see what's happening. Yeah, And I also think that like with a lot of the action, I'm thinking particularly this episode, but I'm also thinking back to some of the scenes when they're repairing the generator. And since I first watched that, I've had the chance to watch that on a bigger screen. I like the way they hold the camera still or relatively still during some of these action scenes. So there's not like the cuts, they're not continuous scenes, but the cuts aren't so rapid 
that you can't establish what's going on and what's happening to who. So I think actually, from a cinematographic point of view, the show is quite restrained, but it works quite well. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I especially like these stare sequences, not just this one, but in general, but also here with the camera, it's like switching between the feet and the racers and the festivities going on around it. And just the way it zooms back and up, you know, they only physically built like three levels of this staircase. But in the way they use the camera here, obviously with some light CGI supplementation, but they make it look absolutely epic and continuous. And it just adds to, you know, this feeling of like vastness, the fact that this really is an entire city underground. Yeah. And like the way the, the way the foot race is shot as well, you do sort of genuinely get the sense that this is a marathon, that there are a lot of people competing in it, even though you only maybe see four or five people. It's the way it's shot, it implies more competitors than you actually see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, for this episode, credit goes to David Luther, who I'd just like to point out was the DP for four episodes of The Wheel of Time as well, not to mention his Dark Materials, Sherlock, and other stuff. Um, he did this in the last episode, but uh, other episodes were done by Mark Patton and Laurie Rose. So yeah, we've got a bunch of people tag teaming on the cinematography in the show, but I, I think they've made it really cohesive. You can tell that there's an overarching vision, you know. I think it's... It's good for the show that it's been directed in blocks as well. So we had Morton Tilden for the first three episodes. We've had David Semple for the last two episodes. So I think that having it directed in blocks, I think probably helps with stuff like that as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, back in the mayor's office, Sims goes after Juliet. Do you think that he was implying that it's her fault that Marnes died? Like with his stuff, like, oh, well, I, the reason I was at his house yesterday oh, I don't, was because... I don't think, he, I don't think um, he was implying it. I think he was more or less out and out saying it. Mm. Um, because he says, you know, um, why, he basically says, why didn't you post somebody outside? And Juliet says, I offered, which she did. But yeah. But knowing as we do that he most likely had some involvement in, in Martin's death, do you think he was saying, like, almost you forced me to kill him? No, I just think he was trying. I think you and I have a slightly different take on Sims overall. I think the... I don't think he's the least bit bothered about the fact that Marnes is dead. Okay. Um, I don't think he was Marnes' friend. I think at best he respected Marnes as an investigator. I think this is him pushing Juliet to see whether she will push back hmm. and how far she will push back. Because, and Bernard says this, I think, in a couple of minutes, Judicial is used to working with the sheriff's office as a subordinate organization. Yeah, he's basically like the pact tells you to be their bitch. Yeah, essentially. So I think what Sims is doing here is working out whether the sheriff's office under Juliet will play that role or not. Okay. I mean, I like my interpretation, so I'm going to stick to it, but I respect yours as well. Sims for me is the most interesting character in the show because yeah for sure he's, or, or maybe Billings too yeah because he's the he's the most dangerous character mm. in the show yeah so far for sure yeah yeah and to one minor book difference I wanted to point out uh, that's telling about character development is in the book Jules studies the pact as soon as she's appointed here I don't know I guess she doesn't really have the time like we just see her being kind of like ugh and shoving it away. And not obviously not knowing the details. It seems as well like the pact is quite a 
I sort of took it as a sort of Ten Commandments style. Oh no, it's a big book. Short, no, but it is quite. It's a proper constitution for the silo, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, so then we we go to the funeral in the book. Marnes and Johns they were not buried at the same time, but Marnes's funeral still sounds quite similar. So, reading from the book, the ceremony was long, but it didn't feel so. The earth nearby was still mounded where Johns had been buried. Soon, the two of them would intermingle inside the plants, and these plants would nourish the occupants of the silo. Juliet accepted a ripe tomato as the priest in his shadow cycled among the thick crowd. The two of them, draped in red fabric, chanted as they went, their voice sonorous and complimenting one another. Juliet bit into her fruit, allowing a polite amount of juice to splatter her coveralls, chewed and swallowed. She could tell the tomato was delicious, but only in a mechanical way. It was hard to truly enjoy it. Or maybe it's good, depending on who you were. She noticed childless couples biting vigorously into their fruit, their hands intertwined, silently doing the math. Lotteries followed too closely after deaths for Juliet's taste. She always thought they should fall on the same dates of the year, just to look as though they were going to happen anyway, whether anyone died or not. But then, the lowering of the body and the plucking of ripe fruit just above the graves was meant to hammer this home. The cycle of life is here. It is inescapable. To be embraced, cherished, appreciated. One departs and leaves behind the gift of sustenance, of life. They make room for the next generation. We are born, we are shadows, we cast shadows of our own, and then we are gone. All anyone can hope for is to be remembered two shadows deep. But yeah, we don't get those super awkward speeches from Bernard and Juliet in the books. So no, <laughs> I mean, that, that speech from Bernard is just... Oh, it was literally like head in hands moment. During the first part, when he was doing all the mathing, counting the residents who had known only Mayor Johns as mayor, um, I found that pretty moving. But then, yeah, things derailed. And then... (laughs) Her feet were actually quite small. Her feet were actually quite small. But then Jules does like a let's make this about me speech about Marnes, and that's even worse. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty bad all around, but yeah. But she pulled it together by the end. Yeah, I th- and I thought actually, kudos to Tim Robbins because if you're a professional actor, I imagine trying to deliver lines that awkwardly feels incredibly right. wrong, um, right. and so to be able to do that that convincingly was really well done. I thought it was interesting from the passage you read out that the the funeral rites are much more spiritual in that passage, much more sort of religious. Or quasi-religious. We haven't gotten any mention in the in the show of priests yet, have we? Yeah, no. It just seemed in the TV show it seemed much more, for want of a better word, secular um, as a ceremony. I mean, there is the there is the moment where they all bite into the apples and they throw them into the grave, which I suppose has the symbolism that that passage connotes. But yeah, I thought that was actually quite a radical change. Yeah, I mean, but the one thing is, like, until my latest reread, I kind of forgot that priests exist, even though they are mentioned more than once. But when I thought about the funeral scene, I always thought about them biting the fruits and throwing them in the graves. So that's definitely the more iconic parts, the more important part. And it was tomatoes, not apples as well. Well, no, it's, it's all different kinds. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, and I, I, I paid attention in the show, and it was all different kinds there, too. Okay, because I wondered whether with the apples thing, we were supposed to take that as a god, some sort of Garden of Eden allegory. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, or whether whether it's just because they make a satisfying crunching sound. Probably. Before you throw them in the grave, yeah. 
Yeah, probably. Yeah. So the one other thing that when I watched this episode with my mom uh, and she noticed that she said the green armbands they were wearing during the scene with the silo symbol on them, they were giving her Nazi vibes. Did you get that, Luke? No, not really. Okay. Now, when Jules gets back to her office, the down deep deputy Hank, uh, Billy Postlethwaite. Wait, did I say it right? Postlethwaite. (laughs) Billy Postlethwaite is waiting for her. He's brought up a tin of hush puppy cookies from Martha and eaten all but one. Now, in the book, Mama Jean's oatmeal and cornflour cookies, they make it intact enough for Juliet to share the cookies around. Um, And these cookies in the book, they were forwarded to her by a character we haven't met yet in the show, Scotty. I won't tell you Scotty's whole story just in case he does show up next week or Cooper ends up taking over part of his story or something. But in the book, he was Jules's shadow and he was recruited by IT. And he's the one who helps her decode uh, Holston's hard drive, which is where they find out about the images of greenery in the books. This was the information that Allison had undeleted from a server uh, in the book version. But in the show version, we saw that Allison found this information on this hard drive through George. So clearly, at least part of Scotty's story has already been covered by other characters. So I'm wondering if maybe the rest will be too, although I know there's going to be some fans disappointed if this character doesn't show up. Now, in the show, though, yeah, Walker and Shirley, they had sent Hank up because everyone is worried. Uh, People are saying it's a dangerous time in the silo. And then we get uh, Sandy, Chibo Chung. She's back and she swoops into the room with an I don't like you. And she says she doesn't think Jules is qualified. She shares Marm's blame that Holston changed when he met Juliet. Uh, and she demands that Juliet finds out who killed Marns, which Juliet points out is her actual job. But yeah, Sandy says she doesn't trust whatever Patsy Judicial will put on the case. And she, But then she demands that Jules takes Billings with her when she goes to investigate, which to me seems like an obvious Patsy simp by Judicial. But she says that, yeah, it's to make sure that Jules doesn't screw it up by violating the pact. My mom clarified for her at this point, take him, but don't trust him. What do you think? Yeah, I think take him, but don't trust him is really good advice. I really like this scene. I like the interplay between Jules and the down deep deputy. I got to find out what hush puppies were. Mm -hmm. Never, never knew what hush puppies were before this episode. So you learn something new every episode. They're like cookies made out of cornmeal batter, I think, if Google was telling me right. Yes, I would say they're they're a uh, southern thing. Yeah, something made by Confederate soldiers during the Civil War, apparently. So yeah, I learned what hush puppies were. I like the, like I said, I like the, the interplay between um, Jules and the, the down deep deputy. He's referred to by uh, the secretary. I, I do like any character that walks into a room and just flatly announces, I don't like you. <laughs> um, as if we were in any doubt of that right. from last episode. I think you, you learn a lot more about the full power and scope of judicial in this episode, in this conversation, is sort of the beginning of that. So judicial, like I've said in previous episodes, they are very much the secret police of the silo they they essentially they essentially are in charge of security within the silo the sheriff's office works as an adjunct as a as a subordinate organization to judicial and i think that's interesting i would really like to know how that worked under holston because i don't see holston as the kind of man who would accept just finding patsies 
if he were faced with sending somebody out to clean, I think he would want to know that he sent the, the right person out, the actual guilty person. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't really know how that whole um, relationship with judicial played out under Holston. Well, it could be they're trying to take advantage now uh, of an inexperienced, you know. It could. It could. But yeah, regarding Sandy, at the end of the episode, you know, she marches back in again and still says, I don't like you. But she does seem almost reluctant to announce that she's transferring to a deputy station in 105. Though she's lost her up top friends and she feels like she's always being watched up there. Mm. Uh, Side note, they clearly have a lot more deputy stations in the show than in the book. There was only three. Uh, And it was like each deputy station was patrolling one third of the silo. And here it seems like yeah, there's a lot more because we have uh, Hank, if it's like the books, he's on 120. Uh, and then we have this other one on 105. And, you know, we've had several others mentioned. So, yeah. 105, by the way, totally not the down deep. It's the lower mids. They don't eat children. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm, as a world building detail, I am, I'm loving the class structure. And the more we're finding out about the the very, the literally and metaphorically stratified nature of the silo. Right. And how all these different groups interact with each other. I was just going to ask if you think we're going to see more of Sandy in the future, or um, do you think it's going to, like, she'll be a useful ally to Jules in the lower mids? I'd like to think so, because I'd I'd like to see more of the mid-level of the silo, because Mm -hmm. we've seen quite a bit of the up top, we've seen quite a bit of the down deep, we haven't seen very much in the middle so far. So I'd like Sandy to be our tour guide through the lower mids, maybe even the mid-mids. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so going to the, I don't know, probably upper lowers, or probably upper mids, um, Jules takes Billing down some levels, uh, and this is where we see the kids and other people drawing on the stairs in chalk, some of them setting up for the race and some of them just playing. And they go to interview Charles Martin. That was one of the names on the list that Jules pulled from Martin's pocket, and he's got the shakes and an alibi. He was downstairs getting some tests done. It looks like he might have something called the syndrome. Luke, have you been noticing these mentions of the syndrome? We've mostly just seen it on signs or if you pause to read John's logbook in previous episodes. Yeah, I really want to know what that is. And you pointed out in the Discord that you don't know what that is either as a book reader. Um, I do have a little more information. So if you pause, there was a sign at Mechanical. And if you pause it, it says the syndrome. Do you know the signs? Involuntary twitching is the first sign, leading quickly to shaking of the extremities. Flashes of pain and muscle spasms are next. Balance and movement is severely impaired. If untreated, infection will attack the brain, resulting in reduced cognitive function and finally a shutdown of the entire nervous system. For those who are infected or think they may be, advice and treatment are free at any medical level. You must report your symptoms there to receive the necessary treatment. Don't be afraid. Be honest. There is help. Clean living is the real safeguard. And someone caught a screenshot of uh, John's logbook where they're mentioning the syndrome. And yeah, they, it says there that nobody with syndrome can hold high office, or maybe that was a screenshot of the pact. Um, and some people people have been speculating online what the syndrome could be, if it could be like tetanus, Huntington's disease, or some kind of STD. But showrunner Graham Yost did answer the question directly, what it was in an interview with NSFX Magazine in May 2023. And he said, 
Silo's pressure cooker situation adds to the fear that people could potentially rush the door to the outside, open it, let the toxic air in, and kill everyone in the structure. There's a feeling that has transpired before, that paranoia, along with potentially always being watched and lied to, can and does mess with people's minds, which makes me worry about Sandy. Um, And then he says there's a sense at the core that this is wrong, Yost says. Human beings weren't meant to live like this. Talking about that with Hugh, we came up with something called the syndrome. It's a neurologic response to the pressure of living under these conditions. Is it genetic? Is it this or that? It's something people are ashamed of, and we wanted to play with that. If you have the syndrome, you shouldn't have access to any weapons. You shouldn't have physical activity. We have a character who struggles with that. Who do you think the character's going to be? Oh, it could very well be Sandy then. I mean... I hope not, but uh, the only thing we've seen is that she's worried about people watching yeah. her, which, to be fair, I mean, isn't everyone being watched? There are the listeners. Yeah, I think that's I think that that's really interesting. Because, yeah, Gromios is right. This is a deeply unnatural situation for, you know, people to be in on any number of levels, physical, psychological, spiritual. So this syndrome may be a, maybe a sort of psychosomatic thing. But it might well actually be a physical illness virus that's developed in the environment of the silo as well. So I think I think actually having having that level of uncertainty as to what the syndrome is and where it came from, it's actually a really cool little plot point. Yeah, no, it's one of those twists. It's fun for book readers, I think. Um so, yeah, so Jules and Billings are out investigating, um, and after they see the guy with the syndrome, Jules sends Billings home to his family for lunch so that she can sneak into another apartment. It turns out to be the former apartment of Patrick Kennedy, the guy who gave Marnes a bloody nose the day before, and his late wife, Doris, dear darling Doris. So Patrick had been moved to a new apartment after his wife died, but it wasn't registered in the system. So someone screwed up trying to plant evidence framing him for Marnes' murder, namely rat poison and Marnes' drawing of John's. Uh, now that someone planted the evidence in the wrong apartment, leading Jules to catch him trying to clean up his own mess. And uh, that someone was Douglas Trumbull, the character with the name of the late great filmmaker in the real world and the guy we first met in possession of Marnes' shotgun on the night of the murder. So from the viewer's perspective, it's pretty clear he's the killer. But before Juliet can figure that out, Billings, who was also lying about his lunch plans, he finds Trumbull in Sims's office, apparently interviewing to be Sims's shadow, and uh, Billings doesn't seem too happy about that. Um, Luke, do you think Trumbull's making Billings' spidey senses tingle? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And like I said earlier, the fact that Billings, as soon as Juliet lets him out of her sight, the fact that he runs off to judicial... I was going, oh, no. Oh, this is way too obvious. It's like, and then, like I say, Billing surprises me later on in the episode by admitting that's what he's done right. to Juliet. But I thought, oh, on top of the stuff we've talked about with Mons earlier on in the episode, I'm thinking, I don't want to go on the podcast and talk about this episode because I'm really not enjoying, oh. I'm really not enjoying this. Um, but yeah, like I say, they actually turn this scene into something much more interesting later on in the episode. I do think the the calling the character Douglas Trumbull was a mistake because once you pointed out that it's the that it's the name of the director, right? It seems disrespectful. Yeah, that really it does. It seems disrespectful, and it kind of took me out the scene um, on a couple of occasions. So yeah, in answer to your original question, I think Billings is insulted um, that Douglas Trumbull is being considered. 
for his post as Sims's shadow. You think he wants to be Sims's shadow? Because he was the judge's shadow. He was the judge's shadow. I think at some point he was also he was also Sims's shadow. You do, but at then that would point. so that means I mean not to skip ahead, we'll get to it, but that means you think he knows what's behind the door. I think he does. Okay. I again, I got the sense. That he and Sims have known each other. For, it may just be well, sure, they because know each you're other. shadowing the judge. Yeah. But I get the sense that he and Sims have known each other well for a long time. And what I was getting of his attitude towards Trumbull was he was treating Trumbull with contempt because he doesn't think Trumbull is worthy of being Sims' shadow or even having a position with judicial. Okay. Because, as we'll see in a little bit, Trumbull is like he's a serial stumble bum he gets everything wrong in this episode yeah and i think billings is like personally insulted that this fool could be considered for any position in judicial and this is the thing i think one of the things that billings and sims have in common is they are believers they are they are righteous people what i mean by that is they are convinced that what they are doing is right and that the ends justify the means. Right. And so I think from Billings's point of view, Trumbull is just unworthy of the amount of trust he sees Sims putting in him, which is not a great amount of trust. But from Billings' point of view, Trumbull shouldn't even be in the room. Right. Okay. Yeah. And while this is going on, Juliet takes Patrick Kennedy into custody for his own safety. And then, as you mentioned, Billings, he shows up to talk. Now, not only does he tell her what he was doing over lunch, but he shares some juicy intel. It turns out the judicial gets all their own reports, including extra reports from people who, quote unquote, don't really exist. Jules calls these people listeners, as you said, and Billings calls them friends of the silo. But don't worry, nothing they say is admissible in court. Now, interestingly, as you pointed out, Billings looks a little uneasy about it. They're not in the pact, so I don't like it, he says. Yeah, I mean, I thought the the idea that judicial would have its own set of informants is absolutely consistent with what we know of judicial and what we know of judicial's function. I I don't know whether this is deliberate, but the use of friends of the silo I thought was interesting Mm -hmm. because this is not my area of research, but I've read up on it a little bit in connection with other stuff that I have researched. And if you you go through the, the files of the Stasi, the the East German secret police, their informers were referred to as friends. Right. That was how they were informally referred to. So I don't know whether they just thought it was a nifty phrase or whether somebody's read that somewhere. But I thought that was, if it was deliberate, it was a nice touch. I feel like there has been a few instances where, you know, the word friends, wink, wink, has been used as a political term like that. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how many of these listeners, how many of these friends there are right like in a total population good question within the silo because if you go back through old stasi files if you go back through old gestapo files one of the things that's really interesting is that these organizations are absolutely dependent on volunteers they're absolutely dependent Hmm. on informants so you take a you take a mid-sized german city uh, like I think it was, I think the one I read was from Cologne, so quite a large German city. The Gestapo office in Cologne in nineteen, I think it was nineteen. I'm having to remember stuff from years ago now, but I think it was nineteen thirty-eight. 
the file I read, there's only like about 50 Gestapo officers mm-hmm. in the entire city. So, and that's a city of several hundred thousand people. Right. It seems like there's a outsized number yeah. for 10,000. Yeah. So what I'm saying is the, the number of people in judicial is probably quite small, probably maybe... I don't know, 50 or 60 for the entire silo, if that. But they will be absolutely dependent on these listeners, on these informants to do their job. And I'm just wondering what rewards judicial offers these listeners, because there are basically two ways to recruit informants. You either blackmail them, i.e. you have something on them and you turn them into informants that way, or you bribe them with preferential treatment or cash. Right. Now, we don't know whether the silo actually has the concept of cash. Well, they um, they use, in the book, they call them chits. In the show, they call them credits. Okay, so there's that. But also, I wonder whether you like, you get preferential access to housing and stuff like that. Because, yeah. again, if you look in communist Eastern Europe, that was one of the big lures to get people to inform, was to knock them up on a list for housing or access to consumer goods. Right. Well, in in this scene, the listeners are suggesting that Ralph Melby might be their guy. He works in paper first shift. He was close enough that he could have poisoned John's and Marnes's water, and he could have killed Marnes in his apartment. But his crimes so far have always been petty. So Jules sees right through this, and she knows it's a distraction while Judicial goes after Kennedy. They get their easy frame job, and they can make Juliet look bad on the job. Win-win. But not on Juliet's watch. So we get to the chase with Juliet and Trumbull, with them running down as the racers run up and her dangling dangerously from the rails until she snaps back his finger, he flees, and some runners help her back over the rail. What did you think of this sequence between these two characters? I thought it was a really well done little fight scene. I particularly like the fact that you had people in the crowd watching the race sort of suddenly look up and see Juliet dangling right. there. And I particularly like the fact she drops, is it a pen knife? Or, yeah, that's what I thought yeah, it was. a pen knife or a bottle opener or something. And that falls like all the way to mechanical. It nearly hits some guy in, it nearly hits yeah. some guy in mechanical on the head. I thought oh, that, that would have been bad. Yeah, I thought that was a really... I thought that scene with Walker at the end is a really nice touch and just a way of reinforcing to the audience that this is a closed... You know, this is a silo. This is a closed right. ecosystem. You drop something, it will eventually... If it doesn't it's going to hit someone. Yeah, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't hit someone on the way down, it will land at the bottom of the silo. And I thought, I just thought that was a really nice touch. Right, Just to right. sort of reinforce what the environment is. Yeah. Well, after this series of events, Billings adorably comes to the same conclusion as Juliet, uh, that Kennedy's innocent, but Sims, he already knows it's all Trumbull's fault. Worse, Trumbull's showed up at the door marked janitorial. He followed Sims there once, which means he now knows too much. What's behind that door is only for Sims and his shadow to know, Sims says, a secret passed down from his father who might not have been the janitor he seemed. Or at least he was a janitor with the power to move families around the silo at will if, say, some kid bullied his son at school. But when the janitor showed his boy what was behind the door, he told them that he could never tell anyone, not even his future wife. Luke, what do you think is behind the door? I have no idea, but I'm really keen to find out. Yeah, no, I was, I've got to say, I think the power of this scene is that I wasn't concerned with what was behind the door. I was far more interested in the story that Sims was telling about his childhood. Right. Um, And the bullying and the way he sort of explains his worldview to Trumbull. 
it was only on the second view through that it actually occurred to me to wonder what was behind the door. And I thought that was that is testament to how well written this little soliloquy is and the power of Common's performance. Yeah. Because he puts like real emotion behind this. And I thought that was interesting because Sims is quite a cool, quite a sort of cold character. And you very much get the sense that you don't, this kind of emotion in him is not normal. You know, he's not a guy who indulges strong emotion. So I thought the way, the way Common delivered this little soliloquy was really well done. And you can see that Trumbull goes from curious to scared yeah. to really quite happy when he thinks he's going to be Sims' shadow. So there's actually two really good performances, particularly the guy playing Trumbull, because he, he says hardly anything um, during this. His whole demeanor shifts. Well, you can see uh, his whole journey from like, oh, shit, to, oh, okay, to, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think we're gonna, we should find out this season what's behind the door. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what it is, although the fact that it's labeled janitorial and the fact that Sims knows about it is throwing book readers for a loop. Do you think anyone else knows about it? He does reference, quote unquote, people behind that door doing the most important work in the silo. Who do you think that is? And, and how many do you think know this is there? I think so possibly Judge Meadows. I think possibly Bernard but I'm not sure about Bernard. Okay. I think it would be very, I think it'd be very strange if Judge Meadows didn't know, seeing as she is Sims' titular boss. And you said Billings too? Maybe, yeah, maybe Billings. Okay. Yeah, well, Doug Trumbull's never going to find out what's behind that door because he done fucked up twice. Fucked up real bad. Um, with Marnes and with Wilkins. Juliet might not know it, but George's killer has been ID'd. Interestingly, though, he's not being blamed for John's, not by Sims. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't quite know what to make of that, to be honest. And it's like, you know when Common gets to that thing about, you know, we're all, you fucked up, you fucked up bad, but we're all human. We're right. all trying to do our best. You know, that was the second I knew Doug Trumbull was going over the balcony. <laughs> See, no, they, they got me. They got me for a minute. So I was watching again with my mom for the first time. And at this point, I said to her, like, I thought he was going to push him over. And she said, he still might. And just at that moment, boom, he goes over the side. Yeah. But it's like, there's nothing else Sims can do but but kill him. Yeah. Well, first, he does make him shadow as long as he swears to do what's good for yeah. the silo. And yeah, what Sims thinks is good for the silo is uh, Trumbull no longer being there to telltales and being an easy person to pin the blame on yeah and this is the thing you know that sims will that after sims did that he will go home he will tuck his kids into bed and he will sleep the sleep of the just yeah. like it does not bother him in the least that he's just killed somebody i i do have to agree with you on that he did not seem at, at all pleased that's what makes sims the most interesting character in the series so far because, like I said earlier, he is the absolute righteous man. When he says they are doing the most important work in the silo, he believes that to the very core of his soul. Yeah. And so that's why I'm saying he doesn't really have friends. He doesn't really... It doesn't really bother him that Marnes is dead because he doesn't... I don't think he relates to these people fully as individuals. He's a Robespierre. He's a St. Just... He's thinking of, you know, the greater good of the silo. And if hmm. 5, 10, 15, 50 people have to die 
to ensure the greater good of the silo, then he is fine with that. Hmm. And if that has to be Mons, he is fine with that. Maybe a little sad. Maybe a little sad. <laughs> the only people that he might make an exception for are his own family. Right. And even then, even then, I think he would have to think about it. Yeah, I mean, he apparently hasn't told his wife about the door. Yeah. Yeah, and then after that, we finally meet Judge Meadows. Um, and it turns out, yeah, it's I, I suspected this by now, but it's the woman from the final trailer we broke down on the third episode of this podcast. Um, I couldn't figure out who she was at the time because she didn't appear to be a character from the book, which Judge Meadows isn't, and she wasn't credited on IMDb yet or anything. But uh, in that trailer, we saw her say, you need to stop doing what you're doing, and they'll never let you. What do you make of Judge Meadows? Um... I hope we get to see more of her because I didn't. Right. I didn't get. I didn't get much of an impression. I have to say, I don't think Sims sees her as his boss necessarily. I thought that was there was an interesting dynamic between them, and that Sims is not particularly deferential. Okay. Um, which I thought was interesting. I thought she hoped she holds Juliet in contempt, which is probably a bad idea. Um, right. Because actually, Juliet demonstrates in this episode that Holston was right. She actually does make quite a good sheriff. Yeah. Um, you know, she actually... But maybe not good for judicial. Maybe not good for judicial, but she actually, like, really competently investigates Manz's murder. Right. And the way the judge just shuts her down, mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And I thought that told you quite a lot about the arrogance of judicial. Yeah, well, if the pact basically says, yeah. you know, you're the boss. Yeah, I, I I hope we see more of her too. Um, Again, new character, so no idea really where that's going or how she fits into the, you know, wider power structure web, uh, which is fascinating. So I want more. Yeah. So then, yeah, we get Jules and Billings. We get them being honest to each other about lying about their lunch plans. And um, Luke, do you think they actually trust each other now? Do you think they should? No and no. <laughs> um, I certainly don't think Juliet entirely trusts Billings. I don't know what Billings is up to, and I don't think Juliet does either, because he's clearly not just um, Judicial's man on the inside, because there was no reason why he had to tell her that. She may have suspected that that's what he'd done, but she had no way of knowing it. Um, so I don't know. I can't see an ulterior motive for Billings. To admit that, I'm not sure what Billings' longer game is here. Does Billings trust Juliet? Probably not, but I'm not sure that it matters because Billings seems to take the role seriously. So Juliet is his boss, whether he trusts her or not, to be honest. So I'm not sure that it matters overly much whether Billings trusts her. I actually thought one of the things that was interesting about this episode is Billings is clearly quite intelligent. Like, from that point of view, I could see why Judicial would think he'd be a good person to place in the sheriff's office. Okay. So he's got one quality going for him now, huh? Yeah, he has. Yeah, he <laughs> has. Um, I'm still not convinced it's worth leaving the trail of bodies that's been left to create an opening for him. But, yeah, I think I could see why Judicial would think he would make a good sheriff. Yeah, so I'm really interested to see where this goes. Who, who do you think Juliet should trust at this point? Oh, Anyone? No, nobody. Nobody? Not nobody. even Martha? No, I'm not. I'm less convinced of the Martha is a spy idea this episode. 
I'm getting less convinced of it by the week, but I'm not prepared to completely rule it out. Okay, well, to then Bernard, he says he was wrong about Jules, and he gives her two days off to go down and collect her stuff, where Jules points out herself, two days ago he wanted to send me out to clean for snagging some shitty heat tape. I solved two murders, and he can't wait to work with me. They trust me. On a scale of genuine to Bernard, where do you place Tim Robbins on this one? Oh, Bernard, I don't think he, I don't think he trusts her at all. But I think Bernard thinks he can use her because what another thing that's like as a subtext to this episode is that Bernard's agenda, whatever that is, and Judicial's agenda, whatever that is, they may parallel each other, but they're not the same. Right. There is that moment earlier on where Sims is proposing the forgiveness right. holiday. And Bernard goes, it's not good for the silo, it's good for judicial. But then Bernard proposes the same thing later. Yeah. Up until this episode, I was sort of thinking that Bernard was judicial's, you know, man in the mayor's office. I still think their interests overlap in a lot of ways. I don't think their interests are completely aligned. So I think Bernard thinks he can use Jules and the sheriff's office as maybe some sort of counterweight to judicial um i also this was the conversation where i thought you were meant to understand that bernard was quite drunk okay i have, I have to go back and rewatch it again yeah he he'd clearly been sort of quite deep into mayor johns's um liquor, liquor collection by that point right well he keeps talking about it and i thought he was more than half cut um during this conversation whether that means anything um later on no. i don't know but i I thought he was drunk. Okay, okay. But yeah, before Jules heads down to the basement, she first squeezes in a little date with Lucas. And now, unlike in the book, here he's drawing on a chalkboard instead of the precious paper, which makes sense. And he's tracing the paths of... Why, look at that, Luke. It looks like it is Star, star Charts. charts. <laughs> I was so happy. I actually did a little squee at that point. It's like, yes, I got one thing correct. If I get nothing else correct through this entire podcast, I nailed the Star Charts. I had to, the first time you said it, I was like, wow, okay, nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this flirting over star charts is absolutely how these two characters meet in the book. Uh, but there's a small but significant difference. Now here, when they look out, the sky is incredibly clear. You can see a lot of stars. In the books, they have to stare and there's like thick cloud covers and they just have to hope to get lucky to catch a glimpse of a single star. Though Lucas has been looking at it long enough that he's been charting them and noticing their movements anyway. Um, anyway, here's how it goes in the book. Lucas pointed at the wall screen and into a mix of black so rich and so deep as to appear as one. The contours and shadowy hues Juliet could make out almost seemed to be a trick played by her eyes, as real as ghosts. But she followed his finger, wondering if he were mad or drunk, and tolerating the exhausting silence that followed. There, he whispered, excitement on his breath. Juliet saw a flash, a spot of light, like someone flicking on a torch far across a dark generator room, and then it was gone. She bolted out of her chair and stood near the wall screen, wondering what was out there. The man's charcoal squeaked on his paper. What the hell was that? Juliet asked. The man laughed. A star, he said. If you wait, you might see it again. We've got thin clouds tonight and high winds. That one there is getting ready to pass. How can you see anything out there? She asked, settling back into her plastic chair. The longer you do this, the better you see at night. He leaned over his paper and scribbled some more and I've been doing this a long time. 
How many do you see? he asked. One, she told him. She was almost breathless from the newness of the sight. She knew what stars were. They were part of her vocabulary, but she'd never seen one before. The problem is that they move, he told her. So in the book, uh, Lucas knows they're called stars, and so does Juliet even. But in this case, it seems like that piece of information didn't make it through the rebellion book burnings. And here, instead of a single star, Jules sees what sounds like all of Cassiopeia and a bunch more. Uh, Luke, what do you make of these differences? I think it's interesting that in the book they knew what stars were, and here they don't. I wonder why you make that change. That seems unnecessary. I think it makes sense that they can see more stars because you need to more clearly communicate to the audience that that was what they were looking at, that that's, that was what they were seeing. If you maybe only saw one star through clouds, it might not be clear to the audience what the characters had seen. Yeah, I'm wondering if um, the fact that they can see more, that the sky is clear in general, what that means about the differences in um, the state of the world and or screens. Yeah, but can you think of why they wouldn't have a reason why they wouldn't know what stars were? Why include that? Oh, I mean, why include that they don't know? Yeah, I think it's it's mostly probably to emphasize how much information was lost with uh, with the book burnings and stuff during the rebellion. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because there's like this whole conversation with Walker that we'll get to in a second. Yeah, so to get to that now, uh, eyes full of stars, Juliet takes her trip down to Mechanical to meet with Walker. And uh, we get a partial answer to one of the most important questions people won't shut up about online. The pact forbids technology that could be used to develop elevators or escalators, okay? Yeah, but it tells you the, it tells you why without telling you why. <laughs> yeah, I, prom I promise you'll eventually find out why. You'll find out who wrote the pact and how and why they did it, um, but not this season. But for okay. now, I'm hoping that people will at least stop pretending that like the showrunners didn't think of it. <laughs> um, yeah, and we also get a new rule that makes sense but isn't explicitly stated in the books. There's also a law against magnification, a law Jules's mother had once broken by making a sort of proto-microscope. Yeah, I thought it was more like a sort of telescope. Well, she, they said they were studying a, a rabbit with it, so I thought it was... Okay. Know, but yeah, she was she was doing something sciencey with magnification, and that was no good, and she got in trouble. And yeah, this camcorder with its intricate wiring is definitely then in the forbidden category of relics. Yeah, and that's when we also find out that Jewel nearly beamed someone with her pocket knife when she was hanging over the rail, and that she still doesn't know where that hard drive is. It wasn't with George's file, so look for that to turn up soon. But she says she's got the right bait to use to catch George's killer, which of course is a Pez dispenser tied with some twine um, or tied with some, you know, what is it, fishing line. What do you think she's going to do with this, Luke? I don't know. I don't know how that is baked. By the way, I, I love the idea of Jules's mum being like some sort of silo version of Da Vinci. <laughs> I really hope we get to see more of Jules's mum doing yeah. her experiments in her workshops. I think that's that's really interesting. The idea of like, Jules's mum being the silo equivalent of like some 14th century scientist, Copernicus type figure. Yeah, episode eight's called Hannah, which is her okay. name. So, so yeah, I th thought that was interesting. I really, yeah, I didn't get what Julia hopes to do with the Pez dispenser. No, I don't know either. Um, but the Pez dispenser never fails to make me giggle. <laughs> so thank you for that. But I've never seen one of those things outside of TVs and movies. No? No. Oh, 
Well, yeah, I grew up in the U.S., okay. so uh, that that was a part of my childhood. Okay. Yeah, and I know people like this ducky one. It's a vintage one. I think it has some like weird peasant. I forget, like chocolate or something. But anyway, people have been like buying it off of eBay since the show started. So what is Pez? Is this just like small sweets? Yeah, it's just like little sugar candies in little tablets. So you just you pull out the thing and um, it's got this long row where you can stack them like it's a stapler. And then you, okay. you close it. And then when you open the mouth, then uh, one at a time, the little tablets stick out like a tongue and you can pull them out. That's kind of what I sort of figured out it must be. But yeah, never seen one outside of TVs or movies. Yeah, okay. Happy to educate. I used to love Pez dispensers, but um, it is just basically another way to get sugar into your body in a novel form. Fair enough. But yeah, we'll have to wait until next time to investigate episode six, The Relic, with the intriguing description. During her investigation, Juliet uncovers disturbing secrets about someone she thought she knew. But we're not done with this episode yet. Feedback channel incoming with some hot takes and deep cuts, along with our final thoughts right after this quick commercial break. Now opening the listener feedback channel. All right. Welcome back. So we've got um, a fun feedback channel to dig through with a lot of different thoughts, starting with Boots of Time at Boots of Time on Twitter. They say, I'm loving Silo. I haven't read the books, so don't know what's going on in that sense, but I am hooked. Like, who the hell are judicial? At least we finally get to see Judge Meadows and find out a bit more about judicial this episode. I wasn't liking not knowing anything much about them. The stars sparkle is the screen of recording is the greenery quote-unquote glitch screen or a recording any thoughts luke uh we really aren't any further forward no i'm finding that out and we haven't had any hint of rumors of what people might have seen during the the power outage as well yeah that's true we've been waiting for that and yeah i think this gets back to like my problem with the pacing of mm-hmm. this episode i i do feel like there are several plot threads in terms of there is that who killed there is who killed the mayor right there is bernard you know what's bernard's end game here there is what's going on with billings like because we hit the halfway point of season one with this episode and i do i am a little bit concerned that there seems to be a lot of threads okay. that we're not making much progress with. And I hope that means it's not a rush to the end in sort of the final two or three episodes. Right. Um, but I do think we made some progress on the who killed John's question just by answering who killed Marnes and George. And so it seems like John's has to be linked to that. And, and well, we don't know. Maybe John's was killed by accident with the poisoning that was meant for Marnes. Probably not. Maybe they were both meant to die because clearly that's what happened in the end. But I think we know at least there seems to be a solid link with Trumbull or Sims or Judicial or the janitors somewhere there. Yeah, maybe. Okay. And so we also have feedback from Geek and Review at The Geeks Review on Twitter. And he said, just seeing this week's ep, felt like a bit of a rehash of last week's. The Marnes Mayor murders, both scenes had three people in them talking about the same sort of thing. Bernard said some very interesting things and pretty much told the audience he's not afraid to manipulate the truth, but clearly set up a lot. The pact, the syndrome, etc. And I also keep noticing the circular theme, the symbol of the silo, the staircase, the circle of life. 
Even the lights in Bernard's office are circular. Have you been noticing that, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that's that's kind of going to be a common theme of the architecture when you're in a silo that is circular. There's going to be... Because uh, what was the thing you pointed out a couple of episodes ago that I now now can't stop seeing everywhere? Oh, wait, the, yeah, the Barbican Centre Bevel. Yeah. yeah. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so I think the circular thing is certainly thematic. But I think it's also just a consequence of the physical environment they're in that things are going to look right circular and corkscrew-like yeah. because of the nature of the silo. Yeah, I mean, I think there can also be some thematic themes with, you know, the unity and or the also maybe a little bit the claustrophobia. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And, and maybe that's what the syndrome is as well. Maybe it's just a heightened form of claustrophobia. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it kind of sounds like that. So, yeah, Silo TV fans, our friend uh, at Silo 17 Squad says, I'm very pissed off about the Marnes thing. Pissed about how he was killed. Feels like his death was just a plot point to make sure judicial is seen as the big baddie. Foul player, no, it should have been left as an apparent suicide, in my humble opinion. I know you agree. Um, I'm not sure whether it should have been left as an apparent suicide. I think my objection... You just think he should my, have survived. Yeah, my, well, my objection is, A, I don't think he should have died, and B, if he was going <laughs> to die, it should have been on screen, and he should have got some... He should have got the opportunity for some cool last words, a la, you know, Ali, Ali, you know, Hank Schrader, a la, you know, yeah. he should have got the opportunity for a final, for a final sort of... Yeah, to, to tell people who are so, sorry to be a bother. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and they continue, Scotty not appearing would be a disservice to both fans and Jules' backstory, I think. Scotty being the shadow-turned IT guy I told you about. But the funeral thing made me a bit emotional, them being buried together, and Jules pretending to be all practical about it when she's really just a big soft marshmallow on the inside. Have you ever heard two more awkward eulogies? <laughs> um, and they go on, I'm beyond done with the murder mystery aspect of it, and I'm ready for the actual puzzle solving, please. And they point out in the new Think Story video, um, he spotted film canisters in the janitor's closet that got me a bit, bit hyped. Uh, Think Story, by the way, is a YouTube channel I'm also a fan of. The guy who makes the videos there, he hasn't read the books, but he's really good at spotting details. And so he zooms in on these. Yeah, in the back, there's something. It could just be files, but it could be film canisters, which would be very interesting given the camcorder discovery. Okay. Uh, and yeah, they continue. I'm not the biggest fan of the current pacing and a couple writing decisions they've made, but they'd have to physically lock me up before I stop watching and hyping up this show. Luke, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I, I wasn't concerned about the pacing before this episode. I do kind of agree that we need in the next episode to move along a bit. I think in terms of what's going on with the politics of it, what's going on with Bernard. Does he want to be mayor? Does he not want to be mayor? I think we need to find out a bit more about what Bernard is actually up to here, what his agenda is. And I, I'm not massively concerned at this point, but I do feel like it needs to, it does need to move along a little quicker, just because I don't want to get to like episode nine and ten and for them to be huge dumps of exposition. Right. Basically. I mean, I do feel like that they were turning a corner in this episode because, um, just because, you know, we found out at least a lot about the murders and we got that tease about the door. Yeah, I'd like to watch it. I'm going to watch this episode again because the first time I watched it, like for the opening 10 minutes, I couldn't get past Marnes. 
the second time I watched it, I was sort of really hyper-focused on judicial. I think I need to watch it maybe a couple more times to get the the full effect of the episode. Because like I say, I'm sorry to keep banging on about this, but Mom's dying off screen, I thought was the it was the first time in the series where I thought, this is a really major misstep. Hmm. It really sort of spoiled the entire episode. Fair. Okay, so we also got feedback from Stu at Doove71 on Twitter. And uh, Stu says, whoa, was not expecting Marnes to be gone so soon. Also really didn't think Sims was involved in the deaths of the mayor and Marnes, but it seems the janitors could be the Illuminati of the silo. Question, do you really think Martha hasn't figured out how to view what's on the camcorder and not watched it? If so, why not tell Juliet? It looked like the camcorder was playing in the previous episode. That's what we all thought. It chimes with Luke's vibes that she's an informer. Or is she part of the mysterious janitor's faction? Luke? I don't think that was... That, that wasn't originally my vibes that she was right. an informer. That was some... That was, you, that was, you were open to them, yeah. That was somebody on the Discord, right. but I'm open to the possibility that she might be a listener or a friend of the silo, as we're, as we're called. Um, I'm not sure whether Martha did get the camcorder to play um, in the last episode. I think she got it to turn on, but that's different from getting it to actually play. That's true. It seems to shine some light, but maybe it's empty, so maybe there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I wouldn't take it as a hundred percent that we actually that she actually saw a video in the camcorder and played it. I think she managed to switch it on. I think we can be pretty sure of that. But beyond that, I'm not sure that we should infer that she actually saw anything. Okay, and um, yeah, Dove also left a, a message on the Discord. This is the Lorehounds Discord where we have the Silo channel link in the show notes. And he said, just binge listen to Woolshift Dust, loving it. I smiled when Luke mentioned the scene with the mare pressing the flesh on her trip down to Mechanical and how the show used the great shorthand of kissing babies to signpost that she was a savvy politician. However, this and one of the silo occupants uh, stating, I'll vote for you, got me on a train of thought. Bearing in mind, we need to currently believe the narrative of the revolution. Why would the silo have politicians? By its very nature, politics is divisional and adversarial. Why would you have a system that has that division as one of its key pillars? It seems counterintuitive to the whole principle of keeping the silo on the level. Thoughts? Well, I mean, politics is unavoidable because in this scenario, politics is the art of managing society. It's the art of managing resources. And so even if you didn't have a democratic form of politics, you'd still have to have some form of political hierarchy. You'd still have to have some decision-making process to allocate resources. And that is that would be politics, whether you call it that or not. And actually, I think what's interesting about the silo is you're increasingly seeing that there is the power structure that is written down in the pact and the power structure that the people of the silo think they know with the mayor at the top and all the other heads of department reporting up to the mayor. And then we have who is actually exercising power in the silo, right. who is actually making things happen. The mayor is only one actor among many yeah. in reality. And it seems like actually the bulk of executive power probably rests with judicial. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think they are setting up this really interesting dichotomy between the formal power structures of the silo 
and the in, the informal power structures of the silo. So two thoughts. One is that, yeah, I think that at least giving people the illusion of democracy is more likely to keep them calmer than, uh, you know, having some sort of dictatorship where, you know, how else would you select leaders? Might as well at least let it seem like they're voting. But then my question for you is, how do you think the judge and other members of judicial are appointed in the show? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, most most secret police forces, which is what I'm taking judicial to be, are the way they the way they are initially set up is that they tend to be like trusted members of whatever political party or whatever faction rises to formal political power. But once they become established, and we can assume that judicial has been there since the beginning of the silo, however long that's been. So once they become really established, they tend to become self-appointed. So it's exactly how Sims is describing it. You know, his dad inducts him into judicial, inducts him into the janitor. But the janitors are not judicial. It's a different thing. Well, okay. because Because the people think, you know, the other silo citizens think the janitors are just janitors. or um, or we don't know because he, he didn't say you had to be a janitor to know what was behind that door. All he said is whatever is behind that door, you can't share it. And people might think that you're something else. Okay. Well, I think, I think my point is that organizations like judicial tend to become self-perpetuating right. and, okay. self, um, and self-appointing right. um, in reality. I'm sure that's not what's written down in the pack, right. but that's what actually happens. Okay, uh, so we also we got feedback from her royal bubbliness at JDite, and she says, One of my favorite scenes was Sims talking to Doug as they took a nice walk in the quiet dead of the night, <laughs> chatting about his family, giving him hope. I loved the buildup of the scene with the score. And yeah, I think uh, they've been using the music so effectively. And again, uh, the cinematography around the stairs this episode, also in this scene, was really effective as well. But yeah, she continues, can we catch a break on this show? Now Juliet's going to die. I thought she was supposed to be the hero. I'm spiraling. I'm sorry. It's not fair. Sad puppy face. Luke, do you feel the same? Are you worried for Juliet? Well, I want to say no, but I kind of am. Because I would have thought Mons would have lasted much deeper into the series than he did. I mean... I'm not worried for Juliet because she's played by Rebecca Ferguson, who is the star of the show and who is also the one of the executive producers. Executive producers. So if anybody's got plot armor, it's Juliet. Right. Um, but clearly, this show isn't afraid to kill its darlings. So yeah, and that is I'm not one. Sure. That is one thing that I really liked about the books when I, you know, because the the deaths come hard and fast at first because you're not sure who to focus on, you know. And then, yeah, it starts to, like, it's not like people stop dying, but it starts to feel a little more even with the mystery as the book goes on. And I'm assuming that that's this turning point that we've reached in the show as well. Yeah, I hope we can get a character that lasts more than four episodes. Yeah, I I promise. I promise some characters are there for a while. (laughs) Okay. Okay, we also got feedback from DJ Carlos Enriquez, and that's uh, DJ Carlos Cali. And he said, I think they're poisoning them with that quote-unquote air tank as they go outside. Um, Luke, do you think that, or what do you think is poisoning them when they go out? It's as good a theory as any. I don't think we have a lot of evidence to go on at this point. But yeah, that's certain. That's certainly one possibility. I said it before, I'll say it again. There's been a piece of ev- evidence presented that uh, nobody's paying attention to except book readers. So, Oh, darn it. <laughs> 
Um, I, better get, I better get out the tinfoil now and start making <laughs> my tinfoil hat. Exactly. Um, now, yeah, then we also got uh, from Reddit, we got uh, Farius said, that had to have been the shortest shadow term in history, which <laughs> best comment of the week. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Um, and white paper bag on Reddit said, absolutely zero clue where we're headed with Bernard here. And I like it because white paper bag, again, is another book reader. Um, they say it's just intriguing to see his character be used so differently, but possibly his storyline still comes around to where it should be from the books. I have a feeling they're going to make him a more apparent threat in season two and just keep the heat on judicial for season one. I've got to say, as a non-book reader, I am equally befuddled as to what is going on with Bernard at this point. So if their aim was to confuse book readers, they've managed to confuse everybody at this point. Yeah. And related to that, Kelly Onassis on Reddit also says, knowing about the book, what the hell is Sims going to be in this? I like the confusion, though. Yeah, I really can't comment on that. <laughs> okay, and uh, so the rest of the feedback is from the Silo channel of the Lorehounds Discord. And again, uh, link in the show notes if you want to join the conversation. So uh, JG Jr., a.k.a. Jean, David's co-host on the Lorehound MCU podcast, he said, I too was bothered by the child labor practices of the Silo, even though I understand it, I don't like it. I can only imagine what goes on in the underbelly of the silo and the social stratifications that exist within the community. Lots to unpack. And I know you agree, Luke. Yeah, and I, I'm, I, think, I think that's a really good point of, we've only seen people that are sort of caught up in and accounted for by the official system. Right. I do wonder if there are people either living on the edges of that, where they've just been able to go off it. I thought that was, that was an interesting comment. Well, yeah, we saw George apparently tried to run away to the down deep and that didn't save him. Um, Sadie says, uh, sad about Marnes. I was liking that Juliet had someone to talk to. I hope this isn't the last we've seen of the assistant who let uh, who left to go to the other deputy's office. Who do you think she'll talk to now, Luke? Billings. Billings, yeah, could be. Or, or Lucas or Sandy. Um, so Rocky Zim says, just finished the episode. It was Bernard in the janitor's closet with the Pez dispenser. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, those things are so dangerous. LOL. Bernard is definitely not a people person. Bad jokes and bad public speaker. Definitely in IT. I, I loved how they don't know what stars are and refer to them as lights. Lucas is definitely a thinker. It's hard to know what's going on. Sims' story seems to be a possibility, but does he even know the actual truth? What did his dad actually do for the silo? All of a sudden, his bully is gone. Interesting. Eyebrow raised. Uh, Davy Max says, I really like how awkward Tim Robbins is playing Bernard. Honestly, not sure how I feel about the storytelling in this episode, though. I get wanting to keep things mysterious, but I wish we knew more about Marnes' killer than what we've got. And he's already dead. Like, I know he was just a puppet for judicial, but still, it was kind of hard to be invested in the case when I'm not quite sure who is who. Maybe over the stretch of the season, it'll feel better, though. Interesting about janitorial, the first thing I thought of was control, the game. The janitor that has uh, so much more knowledge and is mysterious than anything else in the oldest house. Uh, Luke, are you familiar with this game? No. No, me, me neither, actually. It, it sounds up my alley, though. It's a PS4 game, which is perfect for me. So thank you for the tip, Davy Mac. 
So that's it for the feedback channel this week. Uh, If you'd like your feedback discussed on the next episode breakdown, I'll pin a tweet to my Twitter profile and post it on the Silo Series subreddit to collect feedback as soon as the episode goes live. And of course, you can always find me on the Lorehounds Discord. Please get your feedback to us by Saturday to be included in next week's recording. Uh, Luke, where can people find you? Unfortunately, Luke's side of the audio has become too corrupted at this point, so I will fill in for him. You can find him at Luke Midup on Twitter. And you will also find him doing his first initial reactions to his first watch through of each episode uh, around 4 p.m. ish time on Fridays on the Discord server. And of course, next week back on this episode. Okay, and yeah, I'm at Alicia CB on Twitter, and you'll find both of those names spelled out in the show notes. And again, I'll also be on the Discord. Now, Woolshift Dust is a member of the Lorehounds Network, publishers of this podcast. Uh, It's a channel full of content just like this, talking about other books and shows like the finales of Barry, Ted Lasso, and the White House Plumbers, and deep dives into Tolkien's Silmarillion and Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books with experts like Marilyn R. Pukila. Definitely check out Across the Spider-Verse preview episode that just came out with me as a guest, and we've got a review episode coming soon too. Uh, The film opens this week. But as for this podcast... Now that I'm no longer traveling, we should be able to get the breakdown of episode six out to you at the start of the week, as it should be. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed to wherever you listen, and it'll pop right up in your feed when it's ready. Again, five-star reviews are always a huge help in getting more listeners so that we can keep this going, as is word of mouth. Tell your friends about Silo and tell your friends about this podcast. Those of you who have already left reviews, we see you and we appreciate you and your kind words and feedback. Until next week, just think of us as the listeners because nothing we say is admissible in court. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.